given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the life, has the Son, has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. It's uh, one of the most remarkable factors of human history that in this age, in the church age, God has given to us His Holy Spirit. We are not only indwelt by God the Holy Spirit from the instant of salvation, but we are filled with the Holy Spirit. However, when we sin, whenever we sin, we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit, and at that point, the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives is, is squelched, and He is no longer working to produce spiritual growth. Now, there are other facets of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that continue but he is not working to produce spiritual growth, divine good, and the fruits of the Spirit. So we have to uh, confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9. And at that point, we recover the filling of the Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who teaches us and produces spiritual growth. So we always need to make sure that when we're studying his word, that we have uh, taken care of any sins and that we have kept short accounts with the Lord. So we always start with a few moments of silent prayer before we open in prayer, just to make sure that we're all in fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have a salvation that is based exclusively on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, and that that it is based on faith, and that faith is a non-meritorious act of our volition that puts all of the merit on the work of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we come to our study this morning, we pray that we might uh, be encouraged by the things that we study, that it may strengthen our own understanding of truth and our understanding of your word, and that we might be challenged to... Uh, continue our spiritual growth because of the realities that took place when Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Despite the weather outside and the fact that the leaves are falling off the trees, this morning is Resurrection Day because we are coming to John chapter 20. We may be six months off in the calendar, but we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. So I want you to begin by opening your Bibles with me, not to the beginning of John 20, but to the end of John 20, to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John 20 and 21 are the last two chapters in the Gospel of John. 
Now, for those of you who've hung in there over the last two and a half years as we have marched our way progressively through the Gospel of John, and we're now up to, I don't know what it is, 110, 111, 112 lessons in the Gospel of John, uh, we are coming to the conclusion. And as we come to the conclusion, what we are going to see is that like any excellent piece of literature, God makes sure that the main ideas, main themes are emphasized in the introduction and in the conclusion. So as we come to these last two chapters and as we focus on the incredible doctrines that are here, there are some, especially when we get into chapter 21, there are some profound things here. I want to remind us of what, why John wrote this gospel, the author's purpose. John chapter uh, 20, verse 30, he writes, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Christos in the Greek, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Now, this is John's overall purpose for writing this gospel. He says many other signs, and the sign that he is talking about here is the sign of the resurrection. There are seven signs, the first sign of which was the changing of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana back in John chapter 2, if you can remember back that far. And we have looked at the various other signs, the seven signs of the gospel, but the eighth sign is the greatest sign of all, and that is Jesus Christ's resurrection from the grave. And the context of John 30, as we will see when we get there in a couple of weeks, is that he makes a, Jesus has made a statement to Thomas. This is the famous doubting Thomas who has not accepted the resurrection until this particular point because he said that he wouldn't believe it until he could put his hands in the nail, I mean his fingers in the nail print and the, the, the sword wound in the side of Jesus. He wanted to have a little empirical data on which to base his faith. And that reminds us that, that there are things that the Scripture says about faith and sight that we will look at this morning. And as a result of that, Thomas recognized the deity of our Lord and says in verse 28, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Notice the emphasis on sight there. You have seen me. Have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see, that is, those who do not have the empirical data in front of them, and yet believed. So one of the major themes in this entire epistle that we have seen is the emphasis on faith. Over and over again, John drives home the point that our relationship with God is based on faith alone in Christ alone. And what we realize is that one of the most misunderstood doctrines of the Scripture is faith. Very few people understand what faith is, and it is tremendously distorted in a controversy that has engaged seminaries and theologians and pastors for at least the last 25 or 30 years in the evangelicals, and that is what is called the Lordship Free Grace Debate. And so we will focus on that because as we come to the end of John, John returns our focus to this theme of faith. 
and it is most clearly expressed at the in the opening uh, ten verses of the twentieth chapter, which focuses on the great sign, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Locke, the famous eighteenth-century philosopher once wrote, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that His being, or not being the Messiah, stands or falls with it, so that these two important articles are inseparable and, in effect, make one. For since that time, believe one and you believe both, deny one of them and you can believe neither. Locke, of course, was a believer, and he was raised in a Puritan home, and I don't know how fully he worked out his philosophy in terms of theology. I have my doubts, because he was an empiricist, and what we are going to discover as we get into our study of faith is that empiricism is not the basis for faith, for Saving faith, at least it is for some, it was for John and it was for Thomas, but Jesus said there is a faith that goes beyond empiricism, and we're going to have to study that. Now Locke, in the quote that I just uh, gave, emphasizes the fact that, that Jesus being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with the resurrection. See, Messiah is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means the anointed one or the appointed one. And it is translated into Greek, Christos, which means the same thing. And that is what John is demonstrating in this gospel, that we might believe that Jesus is the Mashiach, the Christos, the anointed one of God. That is his thesis statement for the gospel. Overriding everything is that thesis statement. Now, there's a sub sub-theme, and that has to do with, with experiencing the Christian life, which is expressed when Jesus' statement that, that I have come not like a thief to destroy, but, but to give life. That's phase one life, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and to give life abundantly. That's phase two life or sanctification. And the themes of sanctification are developed in John 15 through, uh, excuse me, John 13 through 18 in the Upper Room Discourse. Now, I have been debating in my own mind for the last six months what I'm going to do when we finish the Gospel of John, which approaches. Now, I always get to something like this, and then all two chapters will be done in a couple of weeks, and then it's... uh, Did I hear a little skepticism from the congregation? (laughs) My goodness, you know me too well. Um... But I have decided that what we're going to do when we conclude John 21 is we're going to go to uh, uh, we're going to go to the Gospel of John because we have been so immersed in Johannine terminology for the last year and a half, two and a half years, that we ought to just pursue the the Epistle of John because I really think First John is John's commentary and development on the Upper Room Discourse, and so what could be better for us than to just keep plowing ahead in John's thinking and go on to understand the spiritual life in one of the arguably most difficult books of the Bible to interpret and understand, which is First John. So that just gives you something to, to look forward to. When Locke makes his affirmation that the gospel stands or falls with the resurrection, he is simply echoing what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, hold your place in John 10 and turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 
This is a crucial passage, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the Apostle Paul's commentary on the doctrine of resurrection. In verse 12, he says, Now, if Christ is preached, that is, proclaimed, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul is addressing the problem in Corinth that there were some who were, who were denying physical bodily resurrection. And he argues in response to that, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. You see, he uses a very technical argument here. He says, if you're going to say there is no resurrection from the dead, then that means that no one has ever been raised from the dead. We're not talking about resuscitation. Lazarus was resuscitated. That means when he came out of the grave, he had a mortal body. He still had to die. He was still able to get ill. And he grew old and eventually did die physically. Those who came out of the graves and witnessed on the, at the time of the crucifixion went apparently back to their graves. They did not, they were not brought back to life permanently. That was simply resuscitation. But Christ is resurrection, which means the, the mortal body has been completely and radically transformed. All of the elements of the body, all of the physical elements of the body have been transformed into a new body that will not suffer corruption, not suffer death, and has a whole uh, completely different uh, uh, biochemical structure than that which we are familiar with, so that it can move at the speed of light or the speed of thought, and it can move through through, it can materialize and dematerialize and move through doors and move through walls and it is beyond anything that we could ever imagine, not subject to anything uh, associated with mortal or corporal suffering. So what Paul argues, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if that's not possible, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So what the Apostle Paul affirms here in the, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit is that if Christ did not, was not raised physically and bodily from the grave, as is affirmed in the Gospels, then there is no Christianity. That everything hangs on one real event in space-time history, and that is that the corporeal body of our Lord Jesus Christ was radically transformed into something new, and he had victory over physical death. So that as Locke observed that this is so inseparable to the essence of the gospel that in effect it makes belief in Christ as Messiah tantamount to belief in the resurrection and belief in the resurrection tantamount to belief in Christ as Messiah. If you believe one, you believe both. If you deny one of them, he said, you can believe. If you, if you deny one of them, you can believe neither. That is why, if you look back up a few verses in chapter 15, Paul ties these together as the essence of the gospel. Verse 3. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15, Paul gives us the most concise, precise definition of the content of the gospel. Now, I am going to come back towards the end of our class this morning, and we're going to talk about the fact that faith is believing a proposition. 
Faith is not some kind of a mystical infusion of knowledge or power. It's not some sort of subjective, intuitive insight or flash. It is knowledge. That is how faith has been historically understood in the church. Go back to definitions by Augustine and Calvin that faith is a sure and certain knowledge. Now, we live in a society today that wants to make faith simply an expression of someone's subjective opinion. Satan always attacks through vocabulary and by changing definitions. This is the greatest example in modern times of this is the fact that the Soviets, when they took power, went into uh, Russia and they removed 10,000 words from Russian vocabulary. They burned all the dictionaries. They went in and they had many different works of literature rewritten, uh, philosophical treatises, historical works, and these words were expunged from all printed literature in Russia. So much so that a Russian pastor, friend of mine, who served as a translator for me a number of years ago, uh, who is a, has a Ph.D. in English and is absolutely brilliant, speaks flawless English, has trouble understanding his Russian Bible because many of the words that were expunged by the Soviets were words that are in the Russian Bible and necessary to understand the Russian Bible. And he cannot find those words anywhere with all of his assets available to him as a university professor. He cannot find the meanings of those words anywhere in libraries or dictionaries in Russia today. So he has to guess. If he didn't have an English Bible, then he would, um, then he would not be able to really ascertain what these, these Russian words mean. And that is how Satan attacks is through vocabulary. So there is an assault on the gospel today through an assault on the meaning of faith. And we will have to examine that in a lot of detail as we conclude, John, to make sure we understand that faith is something that everybody can do. Faith, the saving faith is not any different from the faith you have when you get up in the morning and you're running late and you have faith that your car is going to start. And uh, it, hopefully it will. And you're running late and you jump in the car, faith that uh, there's gas in it, faith that when you sit in a chair that it's going to hold you. Uh, it is the object of faith that saves. It is not faith that saves. Let me say that again. It is the object of faith that saves. It is not faith that saves. If it is faith that saves, then ultimately that is faith in faith, that it makes, the, makes saving faith a different category of faith than everyday faith. Meaning that there is something in and of itself in faith that makes it saving, not the object of faith. And that ultimately, I would argue, reduces itself to a form of mysticism because it is faith in faith, not faith in Christ. And this is one of the core issues in what's called the Lordship salvation controversy. And you'd see passages like uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. When you see that word, it is the gift of God, the argument that you will hear from somebody is that the, uh, for by grace you have been saved by faith, and then you come down later on in the verse, and it says, uh, by grace you have been saved by saying that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God that the it refers back to faith. But faith is the feminine of pistis. For faith 
and it here is in the neuter in the Greek. Now, whenever you take a pronoun, it has to agree in person, number, and gender with its antecedent. There is no agreement in gender between the it here, which is a, which is a neuter, and pistis, which is a feminine. Now, uh, the point of grammar here in syntax is that the neuter it refers to the entire subject of the previous clause, which is salvation, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's that whole clause. For by grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. That salvation, grace salvation by faith, is what is the gift of God. In other words, it is the whole act of Jesus Christ on the cross that is the gift. It is not your faith. But it is the salvation by grace through faith that is the, the gift. And the Lordship Salvation crowd wants to come along and say that it's the faith that is the gift. And therefore what happens at salvation is that you were given, and this flows out of a hyper-Calvinism, which sees election as the ultimate determiner, negates volition, so that what happens at salvation, because you're the elect, God gives you, and not the unbeliever, faith. God gives you saving faith. Because there are some people that can come along and say, well, I had a, they had a profession of faith. They love that word. And their life did not exhibit what they think a Christian life should exhibit. So they would say, well, they just had a profession of faith. They weren't really saved. It was a non-saving faith. Well, they, they said they believed in Christ. Aren't they saved? No, no. Unless there are the works that come along with it, uh, they weren't really saved. And they would then go and misinterpret James chapter 2, the faith and works passage. And if you uh, weren't here when I went through that, then you need to get the tape on that. Uh, there are about three tapes on the relationship of faith and works in James 2. And it's talking about sanctification faith. It's not talking about saving faith. And it's talking about the fact that, that, that we are sanctified by means of applying the doctrine in our soul. It's not talking about getting saved in, that, in James chapter 2. And the other passage that they often go to is John chapter 2, where Jesus performs many other signs and, and wonders in Jerusalem, and it says many believed on his name. And in the Greek, it's pistuo ace. They believed on his name. That is the same clause, the same structure that John uses over and over again, including John chapter 20, 30, and 31. That, that by believing, that we are to believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, believe on his name, pistuo ace. And, uh, but they would say that in John 2, because in the next verse, Jesus did not trust himself to them, that they really weren't saved. Because if they were saved, Jesus would trust him, trust them, because they were believers. Now, I don't know you, but to me, that just reflects the typical superficial idiocy of most Christians who think that because somebody's saved, now they're really a good guy. And so, you know, have that kind of a, uh, uh, superficiality underlying these things like the Christian yellow pages. So the Christians can all, you know, sign up and then get in the yellow pages and you can get a, you can get a mechanic or a doctor or whomever and choose them on the basis of the fact that they're a believer as opposed to the fact that they, they're a good mechanic. See, I would rather have a good Jehovah's Witness who's trying to earn his way into heaven by doing an excellent job as my car mechanic than some reversionistic believer that didn't know up from down doctrinally and didn't really care and was uh, had a trend to the sin nature of licentiousness and didn't do a good job. 
uh, work on my car. So you see, when it comes to working on my heart in a surgery or working on my car as an auto mechanic, I don't care where the guy's going to end up in heaven or not. I want to make sure he really understands his job and he's the best guy at it. Okay, it's none of this superficiality, so I'm not just going to automatically trust somebody because they're a believer, and Jesus didn't either, because he knew that they were saved, but they hadn't had any uh, transformation of doctrine yet. They weren't sanctified. They still were thinking that Jesus was here on a political mission, and so they were saved, but they weren't sanctified. They weren't had any maturity. They didn't have any doctrine, and so he wasn't going to trust them yet because they were still operating on human viewpoint. It's not saying that he didn't trust them because they they weren't believers. So Jesus isn't a silly, superficial, modern Christian. He operates on reality and understood that they were still as confused as they were before they were saved. It's just that now they're confused believers and their destiny is heaven. So there's all kinds of things that are going on underlying this issue of faith that we have to look at. But faith is the issue when it comes to what happens at uh, resurrection. It is a belief that goes beyond simple empirical data. So let's look now at our passage. John chapter 20 begins, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, this would be uh, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. And that can also be translated, came first to the tomb, which I think is, is, is possible. Came early to the tomb while it was still dark. It's before dawn. It's at that early break of dawn. It's not quite light, still mostly dark, but the sun's, the, the early pre-dawn, false dawn is beginning. And saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. Notice John always refers to himself as in some sort of oblique third-person way, demonstrating a certain amount of humility, that uh, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, he never names himself, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, I also notice that it's important that, that he makes it known that you know he was the one who got there first. <laughs> Just makes that little side point. But see, John leaves out a lot of information between John 1, 1 and 1, 2. Now, what I have been doing in our series on John, especially since we got into the crucifixion and the, well, with the, beginning with the trials, is trying to relate this to the synoptic accounts and giving you a full picture of what went on during these important days. Now, none of the Gospels give us all the information. They don't tell us everything. They're not writing histories. They're writing Gospels. And a Gospel is a treatise designed to convince the reader that, as John states, that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God. For, for Matthew, he was trying to show that Jesus was the Messianic Davidic King. For Luke, he is showing that he is the Divine One. He's writing to a Gentile, Theophilus. Mark is writing... Peter's account, and he has a different theme. So each one's a little different, and they pick and choose events from the life of Christ that relate to the development of their arguments. So they each leave out information and contain unique information. Uh, So we need to combine them and and, uh, harmonize them to see what was going on. So hold your place in John 20, and we'll flip over to John 28 just to get a I mean, Matthew 28, just to get a 
a full picture of the order of events of the day. Matthew gives us a little more detail here. Beginning in verse 1, Matthew says, Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, so he, time-wise, he's in the same scenario. It's just the beginning of the dawn, still dark. Toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now, we know that there were other women along with him. There was a group of three or four of them. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, or Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus. This is uh, another Mary that w- was with them. So you have to keep your Mary straight. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now, this is not a statement of their arrival as much as it is a statement of their goal and procedure. Verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. Perfect tense. It focuses on events prior to dawn. That there was a serious, severe earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended. This is not the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is an angel from the Lord. Descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now, this is just a fascinating scenario. What drama here. And uh, as a result of this, they, it describes his appearance was like lightning. See, an angelic body is immaterial. I think it's composed of light because of this passage and many others. And his garment is white as snow. And the guards shook, I bet they did, shook for fear of him and became like dead men, just passed out cold. This is a contingent of about, a Roman guard would be four Four guards, probably with a fifth centurion who was in charge of the uh, guard detail. So the guards have passed out at this point, and they probably, they, they may not even be present. Uh, it's possible that in the harmonization of the accounts, they, had, they passed out, and then when they came to, they took off before the women got there, because they, they knew the grave was empty. They woke up, looked inside, Jesus' body's gone, they were on guard detail. If anything like that happens while they're on guard detail, then they're, they, uh, the Roman army was quite disciplined and had serious penalties for infractions such as that. And uh, so they would have been taken out and killed. So they probably had it. And notice, and, and from the other accounts, just to bring, bring a little perspective here, they don't run to Pilate. They run to the temple authorities because, because if they go tell Pilate, they know that they're probably going to just die within a few minutes. And they run to the temple authorities, and the temple authorities then tell them to, well, make up a line, we'll go to Pilate, we'll make it okay, which apparently they did. So the, the guards run off, and then the angel answers when the women come, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Now, we want to come back and look at that. He has risen, just as he said, indicates the important fact that Jesus continually prophesied his resurrection. This isn't some um, accident that occurred, something that, that was some anomaly in history, but something that was planned for and announced ahead of time. The angel then directs them to go quickly in verse 7 and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Notice the emotion that's present. I mean, this must have been an a, a incredibly intense time for them. 
and they have to get their emotions under control because one, one, one minute they're operating on, on fear and excitement and enthusiasm and then they can't even get their story out straight and, and so they have to calm down and focus on doctrine which is an important point. When you're in a state of emotional excitement you can't think clearly or objectively. You have to control your emotions with doctrine. That means you have to have some Bible verses memorized so that you can start quoting them to yourself, and doctrine will then bring some stability and control over your emotions, and then you can start thinking objectively. That's one reason you have to memorize scriptures, and you won't memorize scriptures if you don't know them, and that means you have to be reading the scriptures. One of the biggest problems that Christians run into is they get so busy, they never have time just to read the Word of God. And granted, there are many problems, many times there are, there are things you don't understand, things you... Um, that may be uh, mistranslated in the Word, but you need to be reading the Word, reading the Psalms, reading Proverbs, reading the Promises, so that you can learn these things, underline verses that, that uh, are significant for you, and then memorizing them so that you can claim those in times of adversity. So uh, they are in a state of emotional excitement and enthusiasm, and they run off to tell the disciples. Now, that's a slightly different scenario than we have back in John 20. So turn with me back to John 20, and we will fill out these events from a slightly different perspective. John just tells us that it was Mary Magdalene. He leaves out the other women. That doesn't mean they weren't there for him. He just means that that's not the point that I'm talking about. He just wants to focus on Mary Magdalene. She came early to the tomb while it was still dark, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. The presence of the angel is not an issue for him, so he doesn't discuss it. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter. Now, how does all this fit? Let me suggest the the, uh, following order of events so you can just put things together in your own thinking. First of all, somewhere in the early hours of that Sunday morning, there is a violent earthquake which shakes the earth, And then the angels roll back the stone, and Jesus is resurrected. Now, we will have to look at this, because the stone itself is a remarkable factor here. Some people think that that all this was just sort of made up, and that that, uh, maybe the disciples came and and moved the stone, but but that's not possible, and we'll look at that, that, that information in a minute. There's an earthquake, and the angel descends, opens up the tomb. Christ is resurrected. This is covered in Matthew 28, 2 through 4. Then the women leave from Bethany, which is about a two-mile walk, and they are on their way to the tomb in order to finish the preparation of the body and putting spices on the body. They do not expect at all that Jesus has risen from the dead. This doesn't even enter into their thinking. And on their way, we know from the account in Luke, that they are concerned about the fact that, that they might not be able to complete their mission because there's a, this enormous stone that's been rolled in front of the tomb, to, which was standard operating procedure to protect the body from either grave robbers or from uh, wild animals that would get in there. So they are concerned. They're discussing the factor that they, what are they going to do about the stone. And while they're talking, Mary, who apparently is a little more impatient and doesn't want to walk at the slow pace of the other ladies, runs ahead and is the first one to get there. That's why John focuses on her in John 20, verse 1. 
she arrives first and she sees the stone rolled, aside, uh, rolled away and the, the angel there and she discovers that Jesus has risen from the dead and so she turns and heads off to inform the disciples. So she heads off another way from the way the ladies are coming because they're coming from Bethany and she's headed to Jerusalem. So she heads off to uh, Jerusalem to tell the disciples. While she's on her way to tell the disciples, the other women arrive from, from uh, Bethany, arrive at the, at the tomb just after dawn, and see two angels. One is mentioned in Matthew, but there are two. One is the spokesman. Matthew just focuses on the one. And gives them an urgent message to the disciples. Verse, that's verse 5 of Matthew 28. So then, on an emotional high, confused, excited, fearful not knowing what to expect and, and just absolutely uh, overwhelmed by the events of the morning, they head off uh, to report to the disciples. In the meantime, Mary has already reported to Peter and John, and they take off running as fast as they can to the tomb. And uh, John is the sprinter in the group, and he pulls out ahead of Peter, and he arrives first. He just arrives and looks inside the tomb. Now, what we're going to see when we get into the text is the verbs here are very important to help us understand some, some doctrinal principles. He just looks in the tomb. The Greek word is blepo, which indicates a glance or a quick look. So he just glances or does a quick look, and by this time, uh, Peter has caught up with him, and Peter just pushes him out of the way and runs right leans over, pushes his way into the tomb, and stops, and he just, his mouth drops open, and he just stares at the empty grave clothes. I mean, the Greek shifts from blepo to theoreo, which means to gaze or stare, and he just, he just, he can't comprehend it. There, there's no body there. The grave clothes are just laying there very neat, as if the body just, just dematerialized, and then they collapsed right in place. And he can't, he's just, he's stunned mentally, stops thinking, and is just in a state of shock. And then John comes in behind him, and John looks uh, from Oida, and at this point he sees the entire thing, and he begins to put things together, understands the significance of the, of the resurrection, and uh, believes, the text will say, and then he leaves. They, or they leave together, and then Mary comes up. Mary's been following. She comes back, and it's at this point she sees the two angels there, has a dialogue with them, and then leaves and sees Jesus. This will be covered in starting in about verse 11. She's Jesus, has a very interesting uh, conversation with him at that point, and he gives her, he reminds her again, tell the disciples, all of them, not just Peter and John, but tell all of them to go on to Galilee, and I will meet them there. That is the basic structure of the events of that morning. But John wants to focus on some, some aspect of this related to his purpose for writing the gospel. Why is he writing the gospel? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John is going to come at this from the perspective of emphasizing the faith of the disciples in the context of the resurrection, the eighth and greatest sign. Now, the death and burial of Jesus Christ has been come, called into question by those who wish to attack the resurrection because the opponents of Christianity throughout history recognize, as Paul stated, 
that it is the resurrection that is the linchpin, the cornerstone on which the entire Christian faith rests. If you can destroy the resurrection, then you can destroy Christianity. It has never been accomplished. In fact, there have been numerous people in history who have set out to disprove the resurrection and disprove Christianity only to wind up writing some of the greatest books in defense of Christianity because in the process they came to realize that the scripture is true and that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. One of those is a man who is a Civil War general who uh, after the Civil War was appointed territorial governor of uh, New Mexico during the time of the uh, uh, great uh, land rustler battles there with Billy the Kid. And uh, if you saw the John Wayne movie Chisholm, he's the one who was appointed at the end of that time to to settle all the problems there with uh, Billy the Kid and the uh, Lincoln County Cattle Wars. And his name was Lou Wallace. And Lew Wallace decided that he was going to disprove Christianity. And, in fact, he became a Christian as a result of analyzing all of the evidence. And he wrote a book, a book called Ben-Hur. And now you know the rest of the story. So another one is a guy by the name of, of uh, Morrison who wrote a book called... Morrison was a journalist and lawyer in England. And he set out, after his college career... He set out to disprove Christianity. How could people believe all this bunk? And uh, he was going to disprove Christianity, a guy by the name of Frank Morrison. And uh, he ended up becoming a believer and writing a book called Who Moved the Stone? And he focuses on, uh, of course, the rolling away of the stone as a critical feature that is never answered by Christian critics. And he becomes uh, one of the great defenders, and that book is one of the great defenses of the reality and truth of the resurrection. And if you are interested in that, and I know that sometimes there are uh, students who hear so much in the college classroom, they are attacked, they hear attack after attack on Christianity, and yet they've never had the time, never heard any of the evidences for Christianity, and they, they get very confused and very uh, uh, caught up in, in all of these criticisms and attacks in the classroom because they've never been intellectually prepared to handle the assaults they face from the liberal critic in the classroom. And then they end up coming out of college and they say, well, how can anybody really believe the Bible? There's no evidence. It's just something somebody made up. And there is more evidence, as I stated earlier, we know more about the death and burial of Jesus Christ than we know about the death and burial of anybody in ancient history. And on the basis of all of the information we have, there is only one conclusion. And that is that not only is the tomb empty, but that Jesus rose from the dead. And interestingly enough, no matter what happens, nobody argues the emptiness of the tomb. You look at Schoenfield and his book, The Passover Plot, which tried to argue that, uh, that it was a swoon theory. It's a swoon theory. He admits the tomb was empty. Everybody has to, even in the ancient world, and we know from one very uh, interesting document called the, the Nazarene inscription, which was found in Nazareth by archaeologists and dates roughly to this period, 34, 35, 36 B.C. We don't know anything more about it other than in this inscription, there is this extremely strict um, 
commandment or ordinance that comes down from Rome stating that uh, the penalty, there's going to be a death penalty imposed on anybody who uh, is a grave robber and steals a corpse out of a grave. Now, it's, it's attempting to speculate that what gave rise to this uh, imposition of this extreme penalty was because Rome had eventually heard that there's this claim in, in Israel that a guy rose from the dead. And so they're going to counteract it by saying, okay, the grave was empty, but we're not going to let anybody uh, get away with grave robbing anymore. And uh, we're going to crucify you if you're a grave robber. And that is, it's very possible that this would provide the, uh, the uh, context for such a law. The, the critics, the Sanhedrin did not re- reject the fact that the tomb was empty. They thought it was empty. They said, well, what you've got to say, told the guards, what you've got to say is you fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. Uh, even Josephus recognizes that the tomb was empty. Everybody recognizes that the tomb was empty. The issue is not, was the tomb empty? The issue is, what does that mean? Was the body stolen? Or did Jesus Christ rise physically and bodily from the grave? Let's look at some of the evidence. First of all, we know he's buried in a garden tomb. This was a a place that has clear space-time reality. He's not just thrown in a grave with a bunch of other criminals. The text just doesn't say that he's, he's buried or that he's removed somewhere, but he locates in a specific location that at the time it was written was known to people who lived in Jerusalem. In other words, the evidence is presented. He was buried in the garden tomb that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. If you don't believe to go check it out, it's still empty. They couldn't get away with those kinds of claims at that time if there was still a body in the grave. So it's, the location of the garden tomb is clear. It's a place in space-time reality. Second, there are, there's a contingent of guards that is requested by the Jew, Jewish leaders, and these are not temple guards. They are a contingent of Roman guards. Now, that's important because of the rigid discipline imposed by the Roman army on, uh, on a guard detail. And if they were temple guards, they would not have had this same harsh penalty. So some people have tried to argue, well, it was just temple guards, so it's not that big a deal, and they didn't care. But they were Roman guards. That's why when they come back... As, look, we'll make it okay with Pilate. They wouldn't have to make it okay with Pilate if it was temple guards. Pilate wouldn't have anything to say about it. So they had to be Roman guards. And that means that they were under death penalty if they fell asleep on watch or if they let the body get stolen. Furthermore, the rock that is rolled in front of the stone is enormous. In fact, there are really two rocks that are rolled in front of the stone. But we know from a from a gloss in the margin of Codex Biza, uh, which dates to the 4th century, uh, that 20 men could not roll this rock away. It was an enormous rock. And one of the reasons it would have been so enormous is because of the, the understanding that Jesus had made certain statements indicating that he would rise from the dead. 
Now, the reason that uh, we use that for evidence is because the the uh, Codex Biza is dated to the 4th century, but it's a copy. Now, if you understand what was going on with, with, with copyists and scribes, the copyist writes this in such a way that it indicates that he is just copying the gloss from the earlier manuscript. So he's writing in the 4th century A.D., and the copy that, he is, that he's using, the, the master that he's copying from, was probably dated into the 2nd century or even er- earlier, early 2nd century, late 1st century. could have been very close to an original manuscript. So when he's copying this gloss over, it's a very ancient, very old testimony about the size of the rock. And so there seems to be some suggestion that it was an enormous rock. Uh, there are many other lines of evidence to suggest this, that it probably weighed several tons. Now, what would have happened, and what was standard procedure, was that the, the tomb was cut out of the side of a hill there uh, into the rock. And what they would do is they would take an enormous rock that they would roll over are placed in front of the tomb, and at the base, they would cut a groove. It's not the best artwork here, but they would cut a groove in the rock that this thing would sit in, so that it would take, you'd have to roll it uphill to get it out of that groove, and therefore it would take a number of very strong people, probably with the use of some sort of a pry bar, to even be able to get it out of the way. So it's not something that was easily moved, and before anyone could move it, of course, they would have to take care of the Roman guard. Now, some people might say, well, maybe the Roman guard was involved in some sort of complicity or conspiracy in moving the rock. Well, that's just absurd. Number one, they had no stake in in that, number one. If they... um, Rome, Rome's best interest was that he stay in the grave and, and no one get any idea that he rose from the dead and that, of course, if they were found guilty, if the Roman guard uh, compromised their integrity in such a manner, they would, they would die. So it's absurd to think that the, that the guards would have cooperated in any way with the removal of the stone. But the stone was removed. The guards were on detail, but furthermore, there was another factor, and that is that since they had called upon the guard, uh, uh, they would have gone out and sealed the tomb. That means they would have taken a cord, and they would have taken a wax seal at each end of the cord and in the middle against the rock. Now, this rock, as I said earlier, there were really two rocks. There was the first enormous rock that's placed there, and then there was another much smaller but still a large rock that was used as a prop that was leaned up against it. So you really have two rocks like that. The larger rock was called a um, was called a golel, and the smaller rock was called the dofeg. And they would take this seal, and they would seal, run, run these cords like this, so that there was a seal on both rocks and on the cords at each end. And on that seal, they would place the seal of the emperor of Rome, so that to break the seal was a crime against the emperor. That would, be, that would carry the death penalty with it as well. So in order to move the stone, you have to violate an imperial seal, which is worthy of the death penalty. You would have to take out a contingent of five Roman guards, four, four uh, soldiers and a, 
a uh, centurion who was in charge of the detail, and they were fully armed with all their armor, spears, swords, everything there, and then you would have to move this enormous rock. Well, the disciples weren't about to do that. They were cowering in fear because uh, Jesus had been arrested, and they think that if they show their faces, they're going to be the next ones arrested and put on the cross. So there is tremendous, just looking at the evidence of the text, it is clear that the tomb was sealed and it was impossible from anyone on the outside, at least any human on the outside, to come in and break the seal and move the rock. Josephus, in fact, records his view. He states there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him many Jews and also many of the Greeks. This man was the Christ. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross upon his impeachment by the principal man among us, those who had loved him from the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive on the third day, the divine prophets having spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him. And even now the race of Christians so named for him has not died out. So there is clear testimony from Josephus regarding the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it is clear that, that there is plenty of evidence, more than enough evidence, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ just from the evidence of the tomb, the way he was buried, the fact that there were, he could not have swooned as I went through the evidence last time, there were about 75 pounds of spices laid on him, he was wrapped up in the uh, various strips of cloth that were used to, to encase the body, to, that there was the oil of uh, myrrh that was that was placed in that, which was a very gelatinous substance that would solidify. It wasn't a mummification process, but this would harden in order to, to uh, both protect the body and to provide perfume for the odor of decay uh, around the body. So this is the scenario in the, in the tomb. The body would have been wrapped up in such a way that you had the, the various claws wrapped like this around the body, and then there was a face cloth placed over the face at the head. Now what happens when John and Peter come in is these strips of cloth have now collapsed flat and they're lying on the ground uh, with a space between the claws covering the body and the face cloth and they it's just as if the body dematerialized and they collapsed flat upon the ground. Now let's get back and look at our text a minute. Mary in verse 1 and verse 2 comes back and alerts uh, Simon, Peter, and John, and they take off to the tomb. Verse 3, Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, that's John, and they were going to the tomb. And you get a real sense of the drama and the action here. They're running to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. So John wants to make sure we understand Peter's slow. Uh, and he came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw. Now, these are both uh, anarthrous adverbial participles and should be translated, when he stooped and looked in, he saw. Bleppo. Just a quick glance. He's just a quick look. He immediately sees the linen wrappings lying there. The body's gone, but the linen wrappings are still there. If the body was stolen, the linen wrappings would be gone. 
if Jesus had just swooned, he'd have probably kept some of the ra- and come out of it. They'd have been in disarray, and he would have taken some of them with him to have to bind up his wounds. Remember, he had been beaten within an inch of his life, flagellated prior to the cross. He had lost a tremendous amount of blood. He was dehydrated. The very thought that someone from inside the tomb could have pushed the, this, this enormous stone out of the way and somehow escaped past the guards is just absurd. He was in a state of collapse. And, and even if he was not dead when they took him off the cross, and that's a condition if and it's not true, he was dead when they took him off the cross, But even if he weren't for the sake of argument, he would have been so dead that put him inside a humid cave like this, he would have died within just a few hours from dehydration and the elements, uh, hypothermia. So he, the, they, um, they come in, he stoops, he sees the wrappings, but he did not go in. But Peter just blows past him, verse 6. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. So and behold is Theoreo, and he is just awestruck, just dumbstruck. He's just mouth open, he's gazing, he just can't quite comprehend what he's looking at. And he sees the linen wrappings lying there, the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings. Notice the detail here. Only an eyewitness would make would would write these things. And the face face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, just as it would have, just as if the head disappeared from out out from under it. So the other disciple, this is John, who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and he saw. And believed. He saw and believed. Now, what is it that he is believing? Is this salvation for John? Of course not. See, back in John 13, we understood that all the disciples were already saved. Jesus said, not, said, not all of you had been washed. One of you is not washed. All but Judas were believers. Judas was not a believer, and we have studied that in detail. So he comes out here, and John is still a believer, but now the object of faith now is the resurrection. That is what is at issue here. And he sees, and here we have a different word in the Greek, and this is the Greek word adon, which is the aorist active indicative, adon, and is related to the noun oida, which is to know. So it is, it is perception. And it is a, a broad perception. So that when he looks at this, he all of a sudden everything starts coming together for him. And he understands that, that, that Christ has predicted his resurrection. And he now understands that this is that resurrection. Matthew twelve thirty eight through 40. The scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, or the belly of the sea creature, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 16:21. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Matthew 17:9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. 
Matthew 17:22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Matthew 20:18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And then in Matthew 26:32, Jesus told them, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Luke 9:22-27, the Son of Man must, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he concluded that by saying in verse 27, I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So the point is that Jesus again and again and again notified the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to die, and he was going to be raised from the dead, and all of a sudden it becomes clear to John, but not fully. He believed. He believes something. He believes a proposition, and that is that Jesus rose from the dead. Everything that you believe can be expressed as a proposition. Verse 9, For as yet they, this includes John, they, Peter and John, did not understand the Scripture. Now, see, the passages I've just quoted to you weren't written yet. Those are from the Gospels. He understood what Jesus had told him, but he doesn't have a full understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures on this yet. That's why when Jesus walks on with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he goes through the Old Testament Scriptures from A to Z, demonstrating that the Messiah had to come and suffer and die and be resurrected, because they did not have a correct understanding of the Old Testament yet. In fact, the word here... In verse 9, that they did not understand the scripture. The word there is also our word oida. And one meaning for oida in the Greek is that you don't recall something. You don't remember it. So, and this is typical of John. Remember, he's always talking about the fact that after Jesus rose from the dead, then they remembered the scripture that said. He's done this time and time again in the gospel. So I think the best translation of this verse is that it's not that they didn't uh, understand so he just he just understood it to believe it he did not recall the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead so he's he's recognizes that Jesus is risen from the dead but he hasn't assimilated everything yet but but the faith here that um, that John has is it, while he is already saved it is not the kind of faith that is the best kind of faith. Now, earlier I made the comment, made the comment, we live in a culture that wants to reduce faith to, not, to, to nothing more than simple opinion. Well, I know that the sky is blue because I can see it. If you're just inside and you can't see it and you believe, that's somehow not as good as sight knowledge. But the scripture says that faith is another means of perception. Another means of knowing, if you believe something to be true, and it is true, if I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and I never saw it, and I never saw the resurrection, but I believe it, I know it just as clearly as if, if I were John and I were standing there at the empty tomb. 
In other words, scripturally speaking, faith is not a lesser category of knowledge. It is another category of knowledge. And with regard to doctrine, it is a higher category of knowledge. Now, that's 180 degrees opposite from where our culture tells us faith is. Faith to them is just something less. It's just a matter of opinion. But that's not the biblical concept of faith. You see, modern man wants to base his knowledge solely on rationalism and empiricism. Rationalism says that, that it's based on knowledge. Rationalism is best articulated by Descartes. Descartes was a 16th century Jesuit who was a geometrician, and he put together a proof that was ultimately based on pure reason and reason alone. And he started off with the principle that I'm going to doubt that everything exists and somehow God's just made this some big, big hallucination. I, I don't know that anything exists. How do I know that anything exists? How do I, can I even know that I exist? Scratches his head and says, how do I know I exist? Well, I'm thinking, therefore I must exist. In other words, self-consciousness means that I must exist if I'm thinking. And so he said, I think, therefore I am. But the problem is that he never really could get out of himself, and ultimately rationalism boils down to solipsism, which is a philosophical problem because you can't get out of yourself, and all you know is that you exist. You don't know for sure that anything outside of you exists. But that's a, that's a totally different problem. The point I'm making is that, that ultimately in, there's a presupposition in Cartesian rationalism. And that is that the human, a faith position, and that is that the human mind is capable of understanding and defining ultimate reality. Rationalism is based on a faith assumption. Empiricism is as well. You take Lockean empiricism or, or any of the other empiricists, Barclay or Hume, and ultimately their view of empiricism, that, that I can come to knowledge on the basis of observable phenomenon, is based on a faith assumption that I am smart enough and wise enough to correctly interpret the observable phenomenon. So rationalism and empiricism ultimately base themselves on a faith position. So when modern man comes along, you're talking to somebody and they say, well, you know, you can operate on faith, but I'm a scientist and I'm going to operate on empirical data. Well, you can just say, well, you're, ultimately your science is based on faith. Now, they won't like that and they probably won't accept your conclusion, but that's exactly right. And that's been demonstrated by many uh, Christian and non-Christian uh, philosophers alike. And, see, most people today don't want to study philosophy because then they have to think. And most people don't want to think. They just want to, oh, just give me an answer and I'll buy that. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not, just as long as it makes me comfortable. But faith based on sight is a lesser category of faith than faith based on Scripture. This is why uh, Paul emphasizes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. It's, but not, it's based on a knowledge, based on the revelation of God. See, see, empiricism is based on evidence. Rationalism is based on the use of reason. But, and mysticism is based on in, intuitive flashes, hot flashes. Oh, yeah, that must be true because I think it's true. But, but the scripture is based on revelation knowledge, that God has revealed something, and I believe it based on the authority of God. So... Uh, Paul says that we walk by faith because the authority of God is more sure and certain than my interpretation of my thought processes or empirical data. The writer of Hebrews affirms this in, in Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that is our confident expectation, the conviction of what? 
things not seen. So faith is a, but faith is knowledge. It is not anti-knowledge. It is not beyond knowledge. Faith is a form of knowledge, as, as uh, Augustine said. It is a sure and certain knowledge. It is not against facts. It is not against logic, but is based on the correct understanding of facts and the correct use of lo- logic presupposing the reality of God's revelation. So don't get the idea that faith is somehow irrational. And the reason I labor this point is because that's where our culture is. Faith is irrational, spirituality is mysticism, and this is an assault on, on thinking. And what I am arguing, and a position I've argued for years, is that to be a Christian you don't have to put your mind in neutral like the liberals say, because there's no real evidence for it. As Bultmann said, who was an enormously liberal German theologian, Bultmann said that if Christ really didn't raise from the dead, it wouldn't change Christianity at all. See, that's where modern man is. They say, you know, the facts don't matter just as long as there's some kind of internal, subjective, religious experience that makes you a better person. But the scripture says, not only do you not have to put your mind in neutral to be a believer, but you have to engage your mind at a level that is beyond rationalism and empiricism. And nothing is more intellectually viable and respectable than Christianity. In fact, if you buy the world's thinking, ultimately you do have to put your brain in neutral to buy into evolution or to buy into any of the modern, postmodern theories. That is true anti-intellectualism. And ultimately, the point of faith is trusting in a proposition. And that is the proposition that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins and that he was buried and rose on the third day according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And we will come back next time and get into the doctrine of faith in a little more detail as we begin to see uh, the events, the post-resurrection events unfold with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the fact that our salvation is not based on anything other than Jesus Christ's work on the cross, that he paid the penalty, and that we receive that by faith, which is another means of perception and knowledge, and it is a certain knowledge that we, we know because of your, your witness, because of your testimony, because of your revelation, that these things happen just exactly as they are revealed to us in Scripture, and that our trust is in you, our trust is in your revelation, our trust is not in our own ability, our own thinking, our own interpretation of experience, but on your word. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, that they would make that certain right now. If you're here this morning without faith, without hope, without eternal life, then the Bible says that you can have eternal life and a confident expectation that you will spend eternity in heaven. And that is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not based on our works. It's not based on church membership. It's not based on, on any sort of moral reformation or bargain with God. It is based exclusively on the revelation of God that in His Son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. Because He paid the penalty, we do not have to. And we are, He will give us eternal life just as He has given us His Son as our Savior. And that by faith alone in Christ alone, we have that as our eternal possession. Father, we pray that You would help us to understand the things that we have studied and be challenged by their truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.